uh, said last week that uh, while the birth of Jesus doesn't show up in every gospel, the baptism of Jesus does. And uh, this morning we turn our attention to part of John's telling of the baptism of Jesus. So if you'll turn with me to John chapter 1. And we begin at the 29th verse. And I think we're just reading through the 39th verse. So John 1, verse 29. Listen then for the voice of God. So you see that the baptism, there's this baptism right beforehand. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me, and I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. This man, on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified, and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. The word of the Lord. In 1902, William James, a psychologist turned philosopher from Harvard, published a series of lectures concerning the nature and study of religion, The Varieties of Religious Experience. It's the name of the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And it's one of those grand, dense, formative books of Western intellectual history that I found impossible to read. (laughs) But toward the end of this hefty tome, there is a line that shows up on posters. I can read posters. This is the line. The God whom science recognizes must be a God of universal laws exclusively. A God who does a wholesale, not a retail business. He cannot accommodate his processes to the convenience of individuals. 
he should read that again. The God whom science recognizes must be a God of universal laws exclusively, a God who does a wholesale, not a retail business. He cannot accommodate his processes to the convenience of individuals. That's, uh, that's a substantive, substan substantial and unsettling claim. God is a big box God, distant, impersonal, and immutable. God is Walmart, not the shopkeeper on the corner whose face you recognize and whose name you know. The wholesale God is above and beyond and behind our ideas of God. But the God who does retail business is God with a face, God with a name, a God who's specific. A wholesale God is mysterious and mushy and a vague deity. But a God who does retail knows our business, and we know his. The Gospel of John opens with a big box God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God from the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made. In him was life and the light for all people and the light shines on in the darkness and the darkness has never overcome it. Those lines, they can't, the God of those lines can't be captured by the poet's lyric or the philosopher's ruminating. That God is beyond our capacity to contain. The big box God. But the very next line reads, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And from the rarefied air of eternity and creation and light and dark, we're suddenly at the corner shop talking to the clerk behind the counter who's wearing a camel shirt tucked into a leather belt with breath that has the faint hint of honey and locusts. Because, dear friends, with that quick turn, the Gospel of John goes from wholesale to retail. And no sooner have we met this shopkeeper and he's pulling Jesus off the shelf. Because just 23 short verses later, John is pointing to Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And look, this wholesale retail analogy is a playful, maybe crass distinction that makes God a commodity and every church a local distributor. Hope is just a mom and pop God shop on the corner. But you get the drift because the issue is the move from wholesale 
to retail, from generic to name brand. Too far? Because everything is fine until we locate God in a specific person. The idea of God, the idea of God is not necessarily offensive. It might even be quaint and reassuring. But the identification of God with an individual is unsettling and disruptive. God with calluses on his feet and dirt under his nails. God with a particular timber of voice. God with a unique smell and a distinct name. That's where it gets dicey and divisive. Sandy and I have uh, neighborhood friends that we love. Some of them moved out, by the way. I'm looking at you, Maloney's. We have a group of neighborhood friends we love. We've raised kids together, spent holidays together, danced at weddings and wept at losses together, and we get together every couple weeks. To a person, they're thoroughly secular or lapsed Catholics. They believe there's a God, but don't go to church or practice religion in any noticeable way and they're always hoping to make it into a sermon. <laughs> we recently got into a discussion about who gets into heaven. I told them that was above my pay grade. <laughs> but they were clear that there's some qualifying standard of goodness. Child molesters and serial killers are out. And if you're not good enough in the first go-round, you can work out your issues in purgatory and then get your ticket punched. But mostly, there was a vague notion that being a good person gets you into heaven. They like the idea of a big box God. They may even like Jesus. But here's where things get difficult. When John sees Jesus coming, he calls him the Lamb of God. And that proclamation comes with all sorts of implications about the nature of God and what it means to be human. So consider this with me. Because oddly enough, this is the only time in Scripture where that phrase is used. No Old Testament prophet refers to God's chosen one as the Lamb of God. And no New Testament writer will repeat it. I checked. 
even in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of lamb imagery. The phrase, the lamb of God, is not used. So, of course, there's scholarly debate about what John meant by this designation. The most obvious choice is to, is to connect it to the Passover lamb. But even that's disputed. It's what scholars do. There are other ideas scattered about in the Old Testament because it seems unlikely that John would make up a whole new name on the spot. And linking God to a lamb is also odd. Lambs were often a symbol of gentleness, vulnerability, and stupidity. So hardly the description that would fit a, a god. Meek, slow, and sacrificial doesn't scream, big box god. However, the kicker makes it worse. The kicker is John adding that this particular lamb-like character would take away the sins of the world. Because that information introduced in this introduction means, you're still with me, means that there's some manner of transaction that impacts the moral order of creation. And therefore, this wholesale God now finds expression as a hapless lamb being led to the butcher's block. Or as Scott Jose puts it, John could just as easily have said, Behold the one who's going down the tubes. Behold the loser, the victim, the dead man walking. How odd it must have sounded. And the next day, though, John repeats it, letting you know that it wasn't some foolish slip of the tongue on John's part. This is central to who Jesus was. And therein lies the rub. There's the trouble. In his opening sales pitch, John foreshadows Jesus as an expression of God who's destined to die. And that death takes away sin. Now, for our neighborhood friends, God being poured out into a particular man is a stretch. But that man being sacrificed to make things right with God is too much to take. Or that construct, that construct of reality is too hard to believe. It's more sensible to rely on the comfort of a distant deity tucked away in a big box. It's easier less demanding and more reasonable to just be a good person. There's a calculus 
of sin and salvation embedded in this announcement of John that takes some getting used to, some acceptance, some humility, some witness. Because part of what William James suggests, that's the author at the beginning of the big book, part of what William James suggests in the varieties of religious experience is that the study of religion shouldn't be limited to the analysis of text and doctrine and theological system. Rather, to understand religion, you need to examine the experience and the witness of the individual. Don't just look at what religion claims. Look at the experience of people. And therefore, dear friends, I would suggest that central to our faith is the notion of testimony or witness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. Or some of you can bear witness with this morning's psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. And that's to say that biblical faith is not only the retail experience, expression of a wholesale God, but that there's also the witness of how we experience God in Christ. Biblical faith bears witness to our encounter with or our story of Jesus. And we've all got one. The Gospels don't simply announce that Jesus came from God, but they recognize there's a configuration of creation wherein being a good person doesn't appear to matter all that much. Being saved by the Lamb of God supersedes ignorance and indifference and grace trumps effort. Being good enough is not part of a biblical cosmology. I'm not saying anything about my friends in that statement. My confidence is in the grace of God, not in the goodness of people. Because we're gathered, why are we here this morning? Well, it's the last time he's going to preach for three months. We should go this morning. <laughs> we're gathered in the testimony that God took expression in a specific time, specific place, and in a specific person. We're gathered to testify that the will and way of God is found in Jesus. And in that, we bear witness to the mystery 
that in the life and death of Jesus, we're made right with God. I don't need a big box God. I need a God who is present, not distant. <laughs> Distinct, not vague. Personal, not ethereal. I need a God with a face and a name. I need a God who saves me from myself. Because look, it's the Lamb of God. Amen.